As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. So Arsenal have opened up an eight-point lead at the top of the Premier League after beating Tottenham 2-0. Meanwhile, Chelsea agree an £89 million deal for Mikhailo Mudrik and hijack Arsenal's move for the winger. So how and why did the Ukrainian end up choosing Stamford Bridge and Graham Potter over a title charge with Mikel Arteta at the Emirates? I'm Mark Chapman. This is the Athletic Football Podcast. Mudrik on the break again goes Shakhtar. Real danger for Celtic. Mudrik! What a goal! What a goal! Mikhailo Mudrik, the man with a massive future! After uh, Bappe, Vinicius, Mudrik is the best player in this position in Europe. And everyone who wants to buy him, they must give a lot of money to Shakhtar. They must respect our club and our president. Chelsea are in action as we speak, but they've just announced that they have completed the signing of Mikhailo Mudrik. Remember, it looked like he was going to join Arsenal. Arsenal wanted him. He made it clear that he was keen on the move to Arsenal. That one hasn't materialised. Eight points clear at the top of the table, but you have lost out on a transfer target that you were heavily linked with, Mudrik. How disappointed are you about that? I'm very proud to have the players that we have. We always want to improve the squad. Um, the club is the first one that is trying to do everything we can to improve the players. But uh, as well, we have to have some discipline, you know, and, uh, and we have to be very consistent in the targets that we want, but as well what we are able to do in each moment. And um, we can get those players better. With us today for this one from The Athletic, David Ornstein and Adam Kraft in the focus all on uh, Mudrik's move to Chelsea rather than Arsenal. Uh, do you want to take us through the timeline, David, if that's possible? This is one of the most extraordinary sagas, and, and that's saying something. Mudrik is clearly one of the foremost talents emerging in European football at the moment. It's why uh, there was a bit of a scramble for his services last summer. And Brentford, depending on who you speak to, agreed or came close to agreeing uh, 25 million pound deal his stock rose including in particular playing in the champions league uh, and doing very well and that saw him go from being a candidate for a number of clubs 
Arsenal, Chelsea, Newcastle, others, to being the top candidate for Arsenal in particular. And so they set about trying to bring him to the Emirates Stadium, holding negotiations with uh, Shakhtar Donetsk, with uh, his representatives. Uh, they did a lot of groundwork. It was something that Mikel Arteta was very keen to pursue. Everybody was on board at Arsenal. Technical director Edu, the board, backed by the owners, the Kroenke family. They were ready to put up significant finance. Chelsea started to have some conversations about him dating back, I think, to the summer. But they were mainly monitoring the situation as they were going through this period of transition under their new ownership, a change of manager, uh, working out what they wanted to do, where their priorities lay. But the channel of communication was always open. Arsenal very clearly moved into pole position. There was an expectation internally and externally that it would get done. We saw a number of bids rejected and they stepped up their pursuit on Thursday of last week. That triggered Chelsea into action because, you know, around the week that Manchester City played at Chelsea in the Premier League, uh, it was well documented that some meetings took place. I'm not sure if they were really uh, meetings about Chelsea signing Mudrik. I think there had already been quite a lot of dialogue around their interest. They more happened to have representatives who came to that match. Uh, but with Arsenal trying to close out the deal as soon as they could and reports emerging that they had gone really high with their offer, uh, Chelsea decided it was time to pounce. And on Friday, they opted to take a flight over to Turkey where Shakhtar have been conducting their sort of mid-season training camp. That flight was taken by Chelsea's co-owner Bedad Egbali in the early hours of Saturday morning alongside their sort of recruitment executive, the lead um, of that description at the moment, Paul Winstanley. And they headed over to a hotel in Turkey. They held face-to-face -face talks over multiple hours with members of the Shakhtar hierarchy, including the sporting director, Dario Serna, and Sergei Palkin, I think the chief executive, Mudrik himself, his camp. They came to an agreement on a deal worth 70 million euros plus 30 million euros in add-ons around winning competitions like the Premier League and Champions League. They agreed a seven and a half year contract with Mudrik, which has an option to extend by 12 months to eight and a half years. They agreed the commission with the representatives. They boarded the private jet back to London in the early hours of Sunday with Mudrik. He underwent his medical tests on Sunday morning. By this point, whether or not Arsenal did try or have the ability to re-enter the negotiation, it didn't happen. It was a done deal. Pre-agreements had been signed. And then it was about putting pen to paper on the final bits of documentation, which took place ahead of kickoff of Chelsea against Crystal Palace. And that allowed him to take his place in the executive seats at the ground. And the transfer saga was concluded. I mean, it is a saga, isn't it? Have Arsenal been caught on the hop or is there is there any feeling that they've been caught on the hop by this, David? Did, were they surprised how quickly Chelsea moved? No doubt Arsenal were conscious of potential rivalry in this situation and they would have been trying to find out how credible Chelsea's interest was. But at the same time, there was never a likelihood that Arsenal would go beyond where they were prepared to go, which 
seems to have been exceptionally high, given that Brentford deal that we mentioned, given the consensus around the the valuation of this player being lower, with all due respect, even though he's regarded as a really exciting player for the now and prospect for the future. There were all of these sort of reports coming to the fore in recent weeks that a hijack was in the offing. And so that would have caused some consternation, but Arsenal did not want to belie their principles of only going as far as they were prepared to go, operating responsibly, you know, not spending to the detriment of their financial stability and to their squad cohesion and bringing in a player that would improve them. They clearly felt he would. I'm not suggesting otherwise. They were all in on this. Let's not underestimate just how invested they were in signing Mudrik. When it emerged that Chelsea got the deal done, I sensed quite a lot of shock, definitely disappointment, a little bit of bitterness around how Chelsea had done this, but also calm and perspective because Arsenal's track record in the transfer market in recent times is extremely impressive, led by their technical director, Edu, in conjunction with Mikel Arteta, the recruitment team, the executives, the board and the ownership. They seem to have made more right decisions than wrong decisions, more hits than misses. And even when they have missed out on players like Vlavic, Rafinha, Lissandro Martinez, they appear to have got an alternative that has actually served them even better if this league campaign so far is anything to go by. And so I don't think they will see it as the end of the world. However, they do want to recruit this month still. And so they have lost out on the two players they were going for, both to Chelsea. João Felix on loan, as Manchester United were also interested in him. But I think Arsenal were confident of getting him, given their league position. And I think they would have probably gone a bit higher than Manchester United on the finance. But Chelsea won the day on that one. And then the same has happened here. And so it's back to the drawing board and clubs selling or loaning now know or have an indication of Arsenal's financial strength and that will serve against them in general terms but also as the market comes towards an end the prices are always more inflated and the environment becomes more difficult so it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks ahead but they are committed to strengthening as they try to see out this Premier League title bid. This is not the first time is it Adam that one club has gazumped another in in going for a player and history is littered with those Um, and most transfer deals have questions over them when they are done but this is a fascinating transfer because it opens up a whole load of questions about Arsenal it opens up a whole load of questions about Chelsea and actually, it opens up a whole load of questions about the player himself. It absolutely does. My interpretation of this is slightly different in that I think this is actually one of one of the great marketing projects that I've ever seen by a football club in relation to a transfer. And I mean that about Shakhtar and Mudrik, right? So if you, if you go back around to, to last summer, when all of a sudden you've got the war in Ukraine and you have Shakhtar in a position where they basically lose all their foreign players, because of, of a FIFA ruling that came in and they were unable to sell those players. And as a result, they're left with basically their, their major asset who is left is Mudrik, the one that they're really excited about, 
the best Ukrainian player on the market, although he's only played eight times for his national team, which is another remarkable thing for a player uh, of this cost. There was excitement around Mudrik, but I th- I'm pretty sure I saw Scotland play Ukraine probably within the last year or so, um, and Mudrik came off the bench. I mean, he wasn't an automatic starter in, in that game for his national team. And then I went to their first Champions League game in September, and I remember speaking to Dario Cerner, the sporting director. Well, Adam, actually, let's just hear from uh, sporting director at Shakhtar, Dario Cerner. As you say, you spoke to him uh, whilst following the club uh, earlier this season. If somebody wants to have Modric in their team, they must pay. They must respect us. Modric is one of the best players in, in the Europe in this position, and he showed that today. After uh, Bappe, Vinicius, Modric is the best player in this position in Europe. And everyone who want to buy him, they must give a lot of money to Shakhtar. They must respect our club and our president. That's the Shakhtar Donetsk director of football, Dario Serna, speaking to Adam on the Athletics Away From Home podcast series. Uh, and you can get that now uh, wherever you get your pods. And then saw him play against Leipzig that, that day. I think he scored one or two, created one. They win 4-1. Then he scores in the next game against Celtic. And all of a sudden, yes, he's backed it up on the pitch in two or three games. But all of this kind of marketing really around him that Shakhtar had started to develop, really, if you, it was like if you say something enough times, people really start to believe it. And, that, and those interviews then became, well, look what Man City paid for Grealish. Look what Man United paid for Anthony. Look what Man United paid for Sancho. This is the position that every top coach in the world wants, a wide forward who scores goals. That's what we are going to value him. And they kind of just talked everyone Including you know, including journalists like myself, uh, the whole media industry, and and by and bidding clubs into really believing this guy is worth one hundred million, including add-ons, and they got the and they got the deal done. And I suppose we're about to find out whether he's really worth that because no one really knows. You know, we've we've seen him in a Champions League group stage perform really really well. Um, I was super impressed by him, um, but this is also a player that. You know, twice went up to Shakhtar's senior team within the last few years and was sent back to the kids' teams to carry on training because his his attitude and mentality wasn't seen to be good enough. And it was only under the now Brighton manager, Roberto De Zerbi, that all of that started to change. So it's fascinating to see how this develops in a very, very different environment. When you speak to highly respected recruitment people within football, they do talk about him as being top, top. Whatever they've seen and however they judge and look at these players and analyse them, he is regarded in the way that Shakhtar described him to Adam. One thing I definitely sensed and I reported from the conversations we have around this and other transfer stories is that the price would drop. When push came to shove, the situation that Shakhtar found themselves in, the limited market at that kind of level of finance, they would eventually come down and reach a compromise. I think when Arsenal went to them towards the end of last week, they said where they'd be prepared to go and the report started to emerge. Arsenal hoped right until the end that that would be the case, but the willingness of Chelsea to clearly uh, provide a more enticing package and better terms in some way, shape or form has allowed Shakhtar to get what they want. They seem to have played this situation to an absolute T. It was the situation that we all thought would lead him to the Emirates Stadium. Even his own social media suggested as such. 
and now he's gone to Chelsea. They've had some luck as well, Shakhtar, mm. in that, you know, th- there was, I mean, Chelsea had s- some interest in the summer. And as we know, I think Newcastle and Man City had a luck as well in terms of the teams that could really compete at that end of the market. But this got serious for Shakhtar when all of a sudden you've got, you've got a proper auction. And not only have you got an auction, but you've got a bidder who is a little bit desperate at the moment. A bidder that's 10th in the table, that's got a new coach, that's trying to please the new coach. This is a player that Potter wanted as well. And a bidder that is prepared to pay, they've shown in other deals, what many people consider to be over the odds. So all of a sudden, they had someone at the table that was able to stretch that market in a way that maybe Arsenal... I mean, look, I mean, we're saying Arsenal didn't want to get into a bidding war. They did, right? They bidded three times. The issue was about the speed of payment. They were up to the pretty much the same number as Chelsea overall. It was all around how quickly Shakhtar can get that money because at the moment they're in this situation where there's no fans in the stadium, not sure if they'll get Champions League next season. So they need that money ASAP. So Shakhtar had luck, but they also, I think, had strategy as well. The one criticism you may be able to level at Arsenal is that they perhaps overestimated the strength of their position. Mudrik posting on social media and uh, there was this consensus built up that he had killed his chances of moving anywhere else. And whether or not Arsenal bought into that hype, they did take their time to try and get him for the price that they wanted. That whatever has happened behind the scenes has allowed Chelsea to nip in and it's left Arsenal uh, for the 2nd January, if we think back to Vlavic, in pursuing someone for quite a concerted period and not coming out with him and had to go back to the drawing board. So I think they're principles are laudable and the way they have operated in the transfer market is to be admired but they've got some work to do now to get to where they want to be. Arsenal did see Mudrik as yeah being a player that could contribute now I'm sure but it was really a long-term project for the future and they're equipping themselves with a host of top young players that will serve them well long-term. In reality, if all players were fit, at the moment, he would have been behind Gabriel Martinelli. There's Bakaya Saka on the other side. Um, There's Emil Smith-Rowe coming back to fitness. They're all experienced and proven in this league and they're flying. Of course, Smith-Rowe's coming back from injury, but he was beforehand. Chelsea, the way their injuries and the tumultuous nature of their season has developed meant they probably could have assured him more readily of a starting position now um, and being at the core of their new project immediately in a way that maybe Arsenal couldn't. So that that's one of the other factors to bear in mind. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. How are Chelsea affording all of this? Well, I think the length of the contract seems to be one theory in terms of... So it's an eight and a half year deal if, if you take David's 12 months yeah. add-on as well. And also, interestingly, uh, Baddy Ashiel, who they have also signed in this transfer window, he's a seven mm-hmm. and a half year contract, isn't yeah. he? 
So what? So so explain why why very long contracts can help them afford it. If you do it over the length of the contract, then you can spread those payments um, a little bit easier. Obviously, Shakhtar still get their money, but the way that uh, Chelsea will be able to deal with it with the banks is a lot is a lot easier. You know, it doesn't change the fact you're still committing yourself to spending a lot of money, and at some point you have to pay for it. There is another point of view, which is well, if this works out, we've tied one of the best young players in the world throughout his whole twenties. Right, and we've got him till he's thirty, and we've probably got him on less than he would be on if he was twenty four, twenty five. The flip side of that is football doesn't really work like that, right? If Mudrick goes out and scores thirty goals next season and has interest from Real Madrid, Barcelona in two summers' time, then Chelsea will have to give him a new contract. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I get it to a certain extent. It is one of those things where if this is so clever, why are Chelsea the only club doing it? To, to, to this extent, I know a lot of clubs are now doing five years plus one and things like that as well. You know, Chelsea will be saying behind the scenes, "This is well, look, we've managed to, to to get this guy to commit himself for such a long time. It's a success." I think the risk is why more clubs don't do it. Absolutely, and Chelsea's explanation on this is that he's on a reasonable salary within Premier League standards compared to perhaps some of the salaries at Chelsea before the takeover. And so, you know, a significant financial outlay. It's a 70 million euros deal. Let's see if the add-ons come to fruition. If they do with Champions League and Premier League success, they'll probably be delighted to pay the money. So 60 million pounds plus what they call a reasonable salary over the course of eight and a half years versus if you sign a free agent on double the salary or more even and bonuses over the course of that eight and a half year period may be more expensive. And that's or or there or thereabouts, then if it goes wrong or doesn't go exactly to plan during that eight and a half years, then he is on a more reasonable salary to be shifted to another club who is interested in him than if you were on double the salary. So there is definite risk. And one of the important factors is what Adam mentioned about potentially needing to renew him. But I do see the logic Let's see if it works out because it's a pretty unprecedented strategy. Is there some sort of time lapse on these add-ons? Because you would imagine over the course of eight and a half years, Chelsea will win the Premier League. So, yeah, and if they don't, then there'll be some pretty big questions for the owners given given what they're spending. So these add-ons feel quite achievable over an eight and a half year contract. I mean, the other thing we didn't mention earlier was just when Chelsea brought Mudrick back to England on Saturday, I mean, they even put, Shakhtar's own sporting director Dario mm-hmm. Serna on the plane with them mm-hmm. which is a really unusual thing for the selling club's sporting director to almost be part of the parade he was he was also the person that walked onto the pitch with Mudrick <laughs> yesterday when Mudrick was unveiled and he stopped just by the dugout but he walked out the tunnel with him and then kind of let him go it was almost like a parent cutting the cord cutting the cord um <laughs> And and the other strange thing was the way that social media worked on Saturday, which was that Chelsea started putting on Instagram before Mudrick had signed, and he hadn't signed at this point, and he hadn't had his medical at this point. They they started putting on Instagram like send it you know, to their fans, send a message to Mudrick to show your support for him. And this wasn't something that Shakhtar was sort of fully aware of um, in terms of you know as, as a as a plan about what they were going to be doing. One theory is that Chelsea was still a little bit worried at that point that he'd had this agreement with Arsenal previously, that what if Arsenal come in again? Is there still a risk? It was almost like Chelsea fans go and love bomb this player who's on the plane with us on the way back to London and hope he doesn't get over to North London. Adam, what if that medical hadn't gone to plan? 
and right. <laughs> they'd promoted right. or, or there'd been a problem in the registration or something like that yeah, yeah, yeah. they'd promoted him as their new signing already yeah it was, extra- it was extraordinary i've never seen a club do that before maybe it was look maybe behind the scenes everything was secretly signed and all of that kind of thing and it was almost part of the announcement fuss that that, that, that you get but it was it was definitely an, an unusual aspect to the signing I, I don't know if I sort of clearly laid out earlier in terms of how good I think he can be in terms of, from Chelsea's point of view with Potter, you know, they clearly need someone in that wide position given the injuries that they've got at this moment in time. He's also one of the fastest players I've ever seen, including when he's dribbling with the ball. His shot's really explosive. On transition, counter-attack, he's really, really dangerous. So, And he stretches the game in, I think, in a way that a lot of those Chelsea wingers who like to come inside a little bit more. I still think Arsenal would have been the better move for him. And so, you know, spent quite a lot of time around Shakhtar between September and December. I saw someone who I felt needed a kind of a stable winning environment with a really demanding coach, a secure coach. Chelsea will say they will become that, but I think Arsenal already are that. Who signed him? Because that is not simply a head coach, recruitment, sporting director question. It's also, if you listen to the, um, we, we did one last week on Chelsea with, with Liam and Simon on just Chelsea's recruitment department as well, because there are an awful lot of new people there who are probably jostling for positions and trying to work out how they're all going to interlock with each other when they've come from the Red Bull group and Southampton and Brighton and Monaco and whatever. So when I ask who signed him, it isn't simply a sort of head coach club decision there there are various layers within that at arsenal in their pursuit everybody was on board at chelsea he was obviously on their list they are looking at and talking to so many players in so many different positions and are interested in pretty much everyone of a certain age bracket and a level of talent and potential in terms of this one escalating we are told that graham potter was in favor of this and that the recruitment team that is in place now, which is basically being led by Paul Wynn Stanley and Christopher Vivell. They are in position. Lawrence Stewart has not joined yet from Monaco. Uh, I think that's likely to happen at the end of the transfer window. And the same with Joe Shields, who is working out his notice at Southampton. Vivell and Wynn Stanley are operating in conjunction with Todd Bowley, Bedad Bali, Jonathan Goldstein. I guess some others behind the scenes. On this particular deal, it was activated by Bedad Egbali, the co-owner, and Paul Winstanley. He is the recruitment chief right now alongside Vivelle. And they were the two who went over and got this done. In terms of was everybody on board? I presume so, because in this new Chelsea ownership structure, the relative interested parties, there's a board of directors and in normal circumstances, it would have to be given approval by everybody in the spend in particular. You know, you've got Hans-Jörg Weiss, the Swiss billionaire who's put money into this. You've got Clear Lake Capital and Bedadik Bali's partner. Is it Jose Felicitano? There are a lot of cooks, but it was somebody who was clearly on the radar and some work had gone on behind the scenes. I think Potter was perhaps a bit more involved in the decision than many might have thought, but I'm not saying, given his comments after the match against Crystal Palace, it suggested he didn't know everything about this, which is perhaps fair enough. And then it was Egbali and Win Stanley who executed it. Given what Adam says about them returning on the fly and involving Dario Serna, joined up announcements, 
it was like it was a project between Chelsea and Shakhtar to deliver this pretty stunning transfer. Yeah, and, and I don't think it was just, it wasn't just Saturday, I don't think, where this was going on because mm-hmm. there was messages we were getting kind of Wednesday, Thursday, that Chelsea just aren't out of this. Even as people were saying, yes. you know, Arsenal are getting yes. closer, Arsenal are getting closer. We're getting these messages saying, <laughs> I sent one message to someone at Shakhtar saying, you know, Arsenal fans are starting to go crazy with all the different social media buzz about it. And they said back to me, you know, these Arsenal fans are about to get an even bigger surprise down the line when he turns out in a Chelsea shirt. So I think they were always hoping that Chelsea would become more serious because obviously that raises the bar of of, of how this deal would get done. I mean, the, the, the amazing thing for Chelsea now is, you can talk about all these bluffs. I mean, just this tweet from Matt Law from the Daily Telegraph yesterday, he said, by my reckoning, Chelsea have an, an entire team of forwards either permanently at the club, due to join, loaned in or loaned out. So you've got Mudrick, Nkunku, Felix, Sterling, Havertz, Pulisic, Ziyech, Aubameyang, Broya, Lukaku and Hudson-Odoi. I mean, absolutely extraordinary. And how do you get value on selling some of those players when everyone now need, knows that you need to get rid of them. Here's one more here. Have they signed someone since the podcast started? No, no, no. <laughs> and Kunku joins in the summer. So they have Mudrick and they have Nkunku. Mm. What's Chelsea's front three for the first game of next season? And in all seriousness, do they still need to sign a centre-forward? Mine would probably be Sterling. Do you keep Felix and Nkunku? <laughs> Well, they're not going to keep Felix. Yeah, but you could but you could keep you could put any of them out there. Do they need a striker? I suppose that's a question that so many clubs are asking right now, right? Particularly when you see Man City yeah. and a kind of a conversation emerging about you've got a guy scoring loads of goals. Has he made them better? We're not quite sure yet. In, in Erling Haaland, you look at Arsenal. You know, the, yes, okay, they've got Enketia as backup for for Jesus, but he's probably not the kind of you know when you're thinking of top four number nines actually is it all about the system and the coach more than do you need to go out and spend 80 million on a striker I'm not sure I think they will take a striker I really do (laughs) they were in talks or they have been in talks over Marcus Turam let's see how that develops because the power's all in his hands given that as things stand he becomes a free agent at Gladbach in the summer and had a decent World Cup. This is the club of Didier Drogba and, and the likes. That You know, this is... And I know it's a different manager, of course. But it's the club now of Graham Potter and the guy who spent several years at Brighton almost doing without a striker. True, but the goal-scoring kind of talks for itself at the moment. They see Kai Havertz as a number 10, not somebody that's leading the line. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang hasn't worked out so far as they would have liked. And there have been... Lots of reports about a potential departure for him, which I presume would be more likely in the summer when his market would be less restricted than it is now. And there's been interest in the likes of Ossiemen and Vlavic. They consider so many players for every position. So I'm not making that. Ossiemen will surely be around 80 million won't he? Well, sixty to eighty million, given given the form they they can't surely go and spend another eighty million. Well, they're going to need to invest in their midfield, which is their priority, and remain so after Mudrick. And when you're looking at the likes of Jude Bellingham, Declan Rice, Moises Caicedo, and others, they're not going to come cheap. Caicedo, they are still on. They are yes. on that. I, mean, I don't know if it'll be this month. But... Adam's right. And there's right back. Are they still on Enzo Fernandez? He was the the sort of 
top target in that position, but they weren't prepared to go to the release clause on that one. So if he had been more right. towards what they deemed to be his market value, yeah, they would have done that. Enzo Fernandez will only be leaving uh, Benfica at the moment on his release clause. Whether that changes in the summer, yeah, I think Chelsea would be in the mix because they want at least one midfielder signed and they are likely or working now to extend the contracts of Kante. Let's see what happens with Jorginho Kovacic. They could raise some money. I think this is one to watch. Conor Gallagher, around £40 million is the sort of market consensus with the likes really? of Newcastle and Crystal Palace and West Ham, Everton, Aston Villa, all being linked with him. So they do have some ability to raise. I don't know, Adam, if they'll get that, but I think that's the sort of level they would want. England international, he started yesterday, high potential, good age. Interesting. Interesting. Hi, it's Ian Irving, host of Talk of the Devils, the athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United. And if you want to relive and pour over every single detail of that Manchester derby win, let me point you in the direction of our latest episode recorded at Old Trafford right after that 2-1 win over Manchester City. It's out now. Just search for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Where does this leave Arsenal behind the scenes? Fairly calm, but slightly miffed? Yeah, it's a decent summary, but... No, on the same day that this was being celebrated by Chelsea, Arsenal were celebrating going eight points clear at the top of the Premier League and they're in a really strong position coming up to the halfway point. They know that they need to recruit or would like to recruit and, and there's time still to do that. Let's be clear that for the positions in terms of João Felix, which was an opportunity rather than something they had been sort of planning for, and Mudrik, which they had been planning for, there weren't alternatives that they were pursuing. When you hear of clubs, including Chelsea at the minute, going for a player and having others on the back burner, 24 hours before Mudrik was announced, everybody was reporting Noni Madweki may be close to signing for Chelsea yeah. from PSV Eindhoven. There have been talks. There was a gap in valuation. 
in Arsenal's situation, they didn't have others on the back burner because they were going for these very clearly. That doesn't mean to say they don't have recruitment lists and opportunities they could explore, have looked into in the past and can revisit. And no sooner had the news of Mudrick to Chelsea emerged that reports were surfacing that Edu, Arsenal's technical director, had already been in contact with Deco, uh, who he knows very well, former player, now agent, who represents Rafinha to explore the situation there. It would take a huge amount of money to get him out of Barcelona, even in their financial situation. And as I understand it, Rafinha is determined to stay. He now has a trophy in his cabinet. And that was his dream transfer, as we remember from when he was leaving Leeds, Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham were all interested. And there will be more. I'm sure we will see links come to the surface for a number of players because they will now be making these inquiries. But I genuinely sense they will not do anything that they feel is financially or sporting-wise detrimental to where they're going. And so I would expect them to strengthen before the end of the window. I don't know they will. And if they don't, I don't sense there will be panic. What was quite interesting in the summer was that when they missed out on a wide recruit with Pedro Neto being the preferred target, they actually pivoted in the final days of the window to a holding midfielder in case of injuries to Thomas Partey. They went for Douglas Luiz. It didn't happen. Come January, they were back on the strategic plan of a wide player. Will they pivot again in this situation to a different position. We've seen them linked to a couple of right-backs in the last 24, 48 hours. A midfielder, this point in time, I'm not aware of that. I think they're still looking to strengthen in the wide area. But yeah, I don't sense massive alarm, but there is definite disappointment. I think it can also be strength for a, t- for a team that's in a good position to know when to stop as well with a player. I mean, we saw, we've seen that so many times with Manchester City. You know, when you're in a position where you're sure of yourself with your manager, with your team, where you'd like a play, you'd really like a play because you rate him, but you, your life's, your world's not going to be changed by him. Arsenal's world wouldn't have changed with Mudrick. Mm-hmm. It, would, it might have got a bit better. And we saw this, with, you know, when Manchester City were trying to get Harry Maguire, Fred, Alexis Sanchez, and then all of a sudden Manchester United kind of come booming in. And Man City just sort of stepped aside and said, we actually, you know, we know what we want. We know what our limit is. Man City did it with Cucurella, right? With Chelsea last summer as well, to a certain extent. I think Arsenal can take some strength from that. The flip side of it is you can't keep missing out on really good players like Mudrick, Rafinha, Lissandro Martinez, etc. So I think Arsenal fans will probably be a bit split in terms of which direction they take that conversation. Adam's podcast following Shakhtar's uh, Champions League campaign away from home is available now wherever you get your pods from. David's column is there in full on The Athletic right now. You can also read a club-by-club survey on who your ideal signing would be in the remainder of the window. And a reminder as well, we've expanded our Barcelona and Real Madrid coverage. Mario Cortagena and Paul Ballas were at the Spanish Super Cup El Clasico in Saudi Arabia on Sunday and sent us this. Hey guys, it's Paul Ballus here, reporting from Saudi Arabia, from Riyadh, where FC Barcelona just beat Real Madrid. Playing a game that was 
phenomenal for FC Barcelona in the final of the Spanish Super Cup, the first title that Xavi Hernández win as a Barcelona manager. Uh, and I think that we could see glimpses and not just glimpses, but uh, the reality that the young players and the young talents that Barcelona has, such as Pedri, such as Gabi, that was the MVP and, and, and was phenomenal, uh, such as Alejandro Valde and just old guns like Busquets, like Lewandowski, um, how they have improved this Barcelona team. And my piece that you can read now at The Athletic looks at what this title means for Xavi, um, for his legacy and for the future at the club and how Barcelona can move on and build on this good momentum. Just next to me, there's my colleague Mario Cortegana. Uh, not a great night for Real Madrid, is it? Not at all. Nothing worked uh, at Real Madrid uh, the past night uh, and a lot of things to, to improve. Uh, we just can say positive things about Courtois, maybe about Benzema with this uh, goal at the end of the match, but uh, very bad at defending in the midfield, uh, losing the battle with against uh, Pedri, Gabi, that uh, MVP, Frankie de Jong, Busquets, and a lot of things. And this this is our focus at the Athletic in our story to improve uh, by Carlo Ancelotti. So that means there's loads on The Athletic right now. If you're not already a subscriber, take advantage. It's £1.99 a month for the first 12 months. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.